Hey, folks. Pattern is a disability insurance company, and they know that you want to be confident and in control of your finances. In order to do that, you need to buy disability insurance. Pattern understands the problem is that researching insurance is complicated and time-consuming, which can make you feel overwhelmed and unsure of who to trust. Pattern knows that your time is valuable, and they believe that doctors have more important things to do than worry about insurance. That's why thousands of doctors have trusted Pattern to help them understand the insurance they're buying. Here's how they do it. You go in, you request your quotes, you compare your options, and you buy risk-free. So request your quotes today at PatternLife.com. That's P-A-T-T-E-R-N-L-I-F-E.com. So you can stop wasting time and feeling overwhelmed and instead save money and spend time on the things you love, being confident your family and income are protected. Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading to the airport, right? Yep, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now, but I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw. And I'm really excited. We have a really interesting show for you today, something different, something that I think will be really interesting to a wide array of listeners. And so I want to introduce my guest for today, Bonnie Gatson, who is a clinical assistant professor of anesthesia and pain management at the University of Florida in the Department of Comparative Diagnostic and Population Medicine in Gainesville. And Bonnie is a veterinary anesthesiologist. Bonnie got in touch with me uh, about potentially doing an episode on veterinary anesthesia, and as we went back and forth a little bit, I realized how interesting this is, both in terms of something that probably a lot of our listeners don't know a ton about, but also in terms of really delving into some of the ways that the benefits of the research and the discoveries and the practice that we do can be equally beneficial to both human and veterinary anesthesiologists. So I think this is going to be great. Bonnie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Well, so let's jump in. Why don't we start with uh, what exactly does goes into becoming a veterinary anesthesiologist? Um, you know, tell us what the typical path is and what your path was. Sure. So uh, I actually I, I became interested in veterinary anesthesiology um, when I was in vet school. Actually, originally I was interested in going down kind of an emergency and critical care path, um, but it wasn't until my senior year of vet school where um, I kind of was uh, consulted with with a, a veterinary anesthesiologist who was at the vet school I went to, who kind of talked to me a little bit more about the fact that you can specialize in anesthesia. That was not even something that was in my radar because it's something that's not really, it's not a very common path for many veterinarians to go down. So um, as far as my total training, uh, I went, I did four years of undergraduate followed by four years to get a veterinary degree. And then I did a rotating internship for a year in small animal critical care um, and medicine surgery. And then I actually did my residency for three years at the University of Florida. Uh, Followed that, I I sat for my boards examinations. So I passed my boards in uh, 2016. And the boards examination, um, I think is similar, and of course, Jed, you can probably tell me more. I think it's similar to your board's examination where there's a written and there's an oral examination. Yep, that's exactly right. We have the same. It sounds like your um, multiple choice and essay section was two days long, and then you had a, a later oral exam. So if yes. anything, that's more intense than ours. So ours is a one-day uh, written exam, although I should say it's now divided, actually. So our residents do the first part of it at the end of their first year of residency and then they do the final part of it after they graduate residency each of those are a day so i guess we could say it's two two days no essays though just multiple choice right and i will say that um since i've taken my boards our our board's examination has been amended so now it's a three-day examination as opposed to uh two separate days and 
still two days of multiple uh, choice and essay. And then in the last day, there's a clinical competency exam, which has replaced the oral exam now. And how is that different? What, what is that? Uh, how is it different than an oral exam? It's supposed to be modeled off of an oral exam, but instead it's actually a computer-based exam uh, where the candidates are, are asked a series of uh, they're given a case vignette, and then they're asked a series of questions regarding that case. Uh, and so that's how that, that has now replaced the oral exam. Interesting. Okay. Well, great. So quite a rigorous uh, and lengthy process. So four years of undergrad, four years of veterinary training, a year of internship, and then three years of residency. So, in fact, that's exactly the same length as um, doing human anesthesia. Now, Uh, You mentioned that that rotating internship, you did medicine, surgery, and um, critical care. So what if you were going to do surgery instead of anesthesia? Would you do the same thing except after that intern year you would do a surgical residency instead of an anesthesia residency? Yeah, that's correct. And the other thing that I'll mention as well is uh, for the residency program, it's a matching program, which I think is similar to what humans go through. Um, but if you, for example, you did an internship and you, you wanted to match for uh, anesthesia program and you did get the program, there are uh, additional, there's, they're limited, but there are some anesthesia re- uh, internships that you can apply for as well. And so some people's path includes not only a, a rotating internship, but also an anesthesia internship as well before a residency program. Gotcha. Okay. So of all the people who go to vet school, how many go on to do residencies? Does, is it a lot, part, half? It's not very common, and I think it depends. You know, I only have the experience of, like, my class. So my class graduated, I think there was uh, about a little over 80 of us that graduated in my class. And of this uh, number, I know of um, it's probably less than than 10, but greater than five of us actually went on to do residencies. Okay, so a, a, a fairly small really percentage. Yeah, yeah, so it's a small percentage of people go on to, to do this. Okay, and uh, great. And then is it does anyone who wants to do anesthesia for animals need to do this, or is it kind of you get to be more of an expert, but you don't have to? So if you want to specialize in anesthesia and you want to become board certified, then yes, you have to go through this, this process. That being said, any veterinarian who graduates from a, 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 like a general DVM degree should be competent in anesthesia. And that's a very important part of my job is actually to educate veterinary students so that they can perform uh, anesthesia on the species that they will be working on uh, competently. And again, we're not expecting them to have the same in-depth knowledge that I have, but we want them to be able to successfully anesthetize animals for generic generic procedures, things like spays and neuters, um, wound repairs, and things like that. They should be able to do that in general practice. Okay, great. And does it? uh, It sounds like it depends a little on what species you want to care for in terms of you're teaching them. Hey, you know, what are you going to do? And let me show you how to be competent for that species. If you are there certain species, like let's say somebody is going to work with horses or exotic animals of some kind, do they need different training or do you give them whatever they need while they're in veterinary school? Generally speaking, we give them what they need while they're in veterinary school. Um, some people will go on to do an internship. So it's very common for people who are interested in horses sometimes to go on and do an equine internship. And in that program, sometimes they'll be doing a lot more equine-specific uh, anesthesia as opposed to in veterinary school, it's more, we, we gear it towards the most common species. So those students will still be exposed to like dogs and cats and things like that. Okay. So then let's follow up on that. Many people who go to veterinary school, they work with someone like you as a professor, so they learn how to do basic anesthesia. But some small percentage like you go on to actually do a residency in anesthesia. So what does somebody like you do what sets what does that training allow you to do and and kind of how do you how does that play out uh that's a really good question uh my job is extremely broad uh which i think from from speaking to a lot of human anesthesi- human anesthesiologists they tend to get more specialized so and i mean you can correct me jed if, if i'm wrong about this but a lot of times people will go on to do like a fellowship so they do like pain management or they do like cardiothoracic anesthesia or 
pediatrics or obstetrics or something that's very like specific and narrow focused. Yes. Um, I, I pretty much do everything. So, cause we don't really have that in veterinary anesthesia. So, uh, as far as my job is concerned, uh, my time is split equally between kind of the small animal hospital and the large animal hospital in the small animal hospital, primarily anesthetizing dogs but I'm also responsible for cats and small exotic species, so things like rabbits and birds, uh, who come to our hospital that need anesthesia for really anything. And so our service uh, oversees the anesthetic management of these species that are required things like surgical procedures, diagnostic procedures, imaging as well. Uh, so unlike people, uh, you can't have a dog, you can't just ask a dog to sit still in the MRI. So we have to anesthetize them for that. Um, interventional radiology procedures, radiation therapy, um, neurologic procedures, ophthalmologic procedures, obstetric procedures, pretty much anything. In the large animal hospital, very similar to the, the procedures I described are very similar. Um, but for the most part, we're working on horses, which is the most common species that we see through the large animal hospital. However, the species that we see through large animal hospitals seems to be a little bit more diverse. So we're also working on goats, um, cattle, pigs, uh, camelids, so things like alpacas and llamas, and then large exotic species. So probably the most common large exotic species we're seeing are are large felids, so tigers, um, cheetahs, jaguars, things like that. And are these coming from zoos or from individual private owners or both? Both. Okay. Um, do you have a personal favorite species that you like to work with? That's a really good question. Uh, again, a good question. Um, I'm going to say no. I actually, something I love about my job is that uh, I have to be really fluid in the fact that in a single day I can anesthetize many different species of animals. And each animal presents its own very interesting uh kind of challenges just based off of its own unique physiology and pharmacology. And not only that, but there are some species where there's very little known uh, about its anesthetic management. And so sometimes an idea because it's related to this other species. And so I find that to be an extremely interesting part of my job. But if you were to ask me what I, what I really like and what I do a lot of my research in, it's actually reptiles. Uh, we were, I work in Florida, the swamp, so we see a lot of crocodilians. So that's kind of where my research is focused. Okay, interesting. So you're, and when you say, give me a little bit of what you're doing with your research. Are you looking at uh, kind of anesthetic effects on the animals, or what? What is your research focused on? So my research is focused on kind of the cardiovascular physiology of reptilians, and specifically with inhalant pharmacology, uh, inhalant pharmacology associated with that. These are animals that have um, pretty extreme abilities to be able to shunt blood between their right and left uh, pulmonary system or their pulmonary and their vascular system. And so because of that, they're, they, they usually have these very prolonged recoveries when we use inhalant anesthetics because the inhalants obviously need to be carried back to the pulmonary system to actually be eliminated. And if they're bypassing the pulmonary system, then these animals just kind of stay anesthetized for very long periods of time. So I'm trying to find ways to manipulate their uh, physio- or to manipulate them physiologically in order for them to actually recover from anesthesia a little more quickly. Really interesting. Okay. Um, so I want to come back to some of the physiologic and anatomical differences, but I want to ask you, you also um, mentioned that you do regional anesthesia, so you do nerve blocks on some of these animals? Yes, we do. Um, I have a few of my colleagues that are really kind of, uh, they do a lot of research in this, and because of that, I, I got a lot of training in regional anesthesia, and, and so we incorporate a lot of local regional anesthesia uh, to our practice every day. And do you use, is it ultrasound-guided nerve blocks? Yes, that's correct. Most of the blocks we're doing are ultrasound-guided or nerve-stimulator-guided. And do you, I would assume, but maybe I'm wrong, that you have to sedate the animals before you can do these nerve blocks? Yeah, so um, most of the time we need to put them under general anesthesia because we're using a nerve stimulator, and so it can be a little uncomfortable for them. We can't usually ask them to to sit still for this procedure, but also it increases kind of the um, efficacy of the block. Like we have an animal flow of muscle relaxation that's not moving, so uh, we're able to kind of achieve the blockade 
more quickly and effectively usually when they're under anesthesia. And so are the nerve blocks then done for post-operative pain management? Since you're already under a general anesthesia, it's not obviously replacing general anesthesia. So uh, it's a supplement, right? So for the dogs and cats, for the small animals, I would say, yes, a lot of times we're doing these blocks that they're under anesthesia. And then before we take them into the R to do a surgical procedure, we'll be doing the blocks beforehand. So it will provide both intraoperative nociception or anti-nociception, excuse me, and then post-operative pain management. For the large animal species, a lot of times we can actually do these blocks with them sedated. So horses... Um, and other species, like small ruminants, for example, a lot of times we're doing these blocks with them just sedated. Okay, great. And then you also mentioned to me when we were talking that the uh, you are involved in kind of analgesic management for long-term pa- uh, patients in the hospital. So kind of is that, when I think about that, I think of sort of chronic pain or pa- patients who are in the hospital and need ongoing pain management. Is that uh, some of what you do as well? Yeah, absolutely. So we have uh, an amazing department here at our hospital. Uh, They're an integrative medicine department. So they incorporate um, like a lot of um, Eastern type medicine type things. So like acupuncture and herbs, things like that. And also physical rehabilitation, which is really like a, a huge part of what they do. And so we kind of aid them for patients that are in the hospital chronically um, where they're doing a lot more of like rehab medicine. We can come in and help them with kind of the pharmacologic management of these patients. And so it's really great. It's, a intra, it's across departments. We can kind of get together and, and assist these patients to make sure that if they have chronic pain states that we treat them effectively. Great. How, this may be an obvious question, but uh, I think an interesting one, how do you assess pain? Uh, Obviously, you can't um, ask them to give you a number from 1 to 10. So how do you assess pain in in animals and know when to treat? That's a really good question. I think it's a general conundrum of... of our discipline is a lot of times we can't ask animals what's what's even going on. And that's not only for pain, that's really for anything, you know, is an animal nauseous? Uh, Does it have a stomach ache? Does it have a headache? You know, like we don't really know a lot of these things in general. And so pain kind of is another one of those things where sometimes we're using our own clinical judgment to try to decide if an animal has behavioral changes associated with what we think are associated with pain. We do know about pain is that, or at least pain behaviors in animals, is that there's no behavior that's really pathognomonic. So when we think of an animal in pain, a lot of people think like an animal is like crying or screaming or looking at the painful sight. And those are certainly markers of pain. But then you look at animals like cats, which are much more stoic animals. And I think we all know if you own a cat, they operate on like their own universe. They do their own thing. I have cats. Yes. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And so a lot of times an animal that's uh, a cat that's painful in the hospital might show signs that are very similar to just being anxious in the hospital. So hiding in the back of the cage, not wanting to interact with anybody. And so it can be extremely challenging to determine whether or not these animals are in pain. So we, we use a combination of a few things. Some of these are validated pain scales that have been developed that are usually based off of behavioral signs of pain. Uh, so we can use those to try to guide uh, people who are evaluating pain, what, what kind of behaviors we're looking for. Um, also, kind of facial structures and, and facial um, recognition is something that's become more, um, more prominent, especially in horses. Very recently, there's been something called the equine pain face or the equine pain facial scale or the grimace scale that's been developed. And so there are facial features that can a, that, that a horse will actually sh- demonstrate when they're feeling painful and different degrees of pain. So we can observe for those and we can decide whether or not an animal is painful or not. And a lot of times these scales that we use are also only really useful for acute pain. We don't really have great pain scales or pain scores for chronic pain. And so it's still an area that's being worked on and developed. Interesting. Okay. Now, obviously one common piece of post-operative pain management in humans is PCAs. Almost every human being who has a painful procedure and is in the hospital afterwards will have uh, a patient-controlled analgesic device. Is there any analogous uh, device for animals where they can control the dosage of pain medicine that they get? No, 
There's definitely not. Um, there are some things that we can do to deliver continuous amounts of anesthesia and then, or excuse me, analgesic agents. And then kind of what we'll do is uh, we will reassess those animals. So as the veterinarians, we are the ones that are determining um, how the animal's reacting to the analgesics and then we make the adjustments for them. Okay. Interesting. Do animals under have you, is there ever an animal that for uh, labor gets an epidural? Uh, obviously, that's a very common thing in humans. Is that something we do in animals too, or no? No. So we rarely do epidurals for animals that are going through labor. Um, and that being said, uh, for C sections and things like that, that would be a very interesting thing to talk about because we we manage C sections very differently from humans. I know I've had. I've had two C-sections, so I have a little bit of experience with that on the human side. But um, on the veterinary side, we definitely manage them very differently. Um, tell me, tell me more about that. Them. How, how are they doing? Oh, yeah, we manage them differently also depending on the species. And so um, the two most common, at least at our hospital, the two most common animals we're dealing with that need C-sections are, interestingly enough, are dogs and goats. Hmm. I don't know why. This is just what's represented in our hospital. And so for dogs, um, when we perform a C-section, we need them to be in dorsal or recumbency or they need to be on their backs. And so we have to anesthetize them. Very rarely we can ask a dog to just, like, lay on its back and don't move, uh, even with a regional anesthesia uh, and sedative. And so a lot of times what we're doing with these guys is we prep them for surgery, uh, have the surgeons basically ready to go. We induce the animals flip them on their back. They have all their monitoring equipment already going and the puppies are delivered probably within, we hope within the first five to 10 minutes upon inducing anesthesia. In small ruminants, something that we do that's a little bit specific or different in our hospital, and this is not something that's done everywhere, is we actually do C-section completely under regional sedation. So something that's very similar to um, to humans. Um, because the for the ruminants, we do a flank approach, so they just have to be laying on their side. And a lot of times with sedation, we can facilitate that. And with a regional block... Um, and what are ruminants, Bunny? Ruminants are any species that has a rumen instead of a stomach. So it's a four-compartment stomach, essentially. And so, so ruminants... So cattle, goats, and sheep are going to be like common ruminants. Gotcha. And so... so um, these are the ones that we do our C-sections um, under regional, very similar to what we do with humans. Okay, interesting. So you can do it on them because they can lay on their side. They don't need to be on their back. Correct. They can lay on their side, and then we can give them sedative agents that we can easily reverse in the kid once the kid is born. Great. Interestingly right. enough, a baby goat is a kid. A baby goat is a kid. That's true. That's good. I like it. Um <laughs> All right. You mentioned monitors. You have the monitors already on, which makes me wonder what monitors. Is it the same? Do you use a pulse oximeter, a blood pressure cuff, a, uh, and EKG electrodes, uh, or is it different? Nope. It's very similar. Um, and the pulse oximetry, uh, to me, is very interesting because most of the pulse oximetry units that we're using are calibrated for humans. And so a lot of times we can get um, kind of false readings depending on the species we're using because every species has a little bit of a different of what we call the P50, uh, which is essentially, I'm sure your readers understand what the P50 is. Yes. And so every species is a little bit of a different P50. And so because of that, the pulse oximeter is a little bit different depending on the species. And then you have some species that have um, completely different red blood cells. So that's going to be things like birds. They have nucleated red blood cells. And so the pulse oximeter is definitely not designed to be used with that species. Interesting. So what do you do? Do you have a different monitor you use or you just approximate? We usually approximate um, or we forgo the use of a pulse oximeter altogether for different monitoring. So we'll do arterial blood gases or something like that to monitor oxygenation instead. Okay. So many years ago, and I don't remember how many, the New York Times Magazine had on its front cover a goldfish undergoing anesthesia. And it was really, it was interesting for a variety of reasons, but uh, it, I, when I thought back on this, I realized that I had questions about anesthetizing fish. Is that something that you do? Uh, and if so, is the machine essentially giving them water instead of air? So really, yeah. So I, I have not anesthetized many fish. I've only anesthetized one fish my entire career, which was a koi fish. Um, but 
I'm pretty well versed in, in what the process is. So the first thing they have to understand about fish is that they don't have lungs. They have gills, and that's their major respiratory organ. And so when we anesthetize fish, we very rarely are going to be using an agent that needs to be that have a carrier gas like oxygen or anything like that. So we do something completely different. So the most common agent that's used to anesthetize fish is actually an, a, a powder that can be dissolved into the um, into the water that the fish is, is in. It's called MS-222. And uh, it's actually a local anesthetic. And these are this agent, once it's dissolved in, as actually will have the fish will stop swimming. Sometimes they'll go on their side. Uh, what we call opercular movements, which is essentially the pump that pumps water across the gills will kind of slow down. Then we can remove the fish from water. And in order to maintain anesthesia, we can actually titrate the amount of this dissolved powder that's in there in the water. And we run this throughout or over the gills while the procedure is going on. Then when we want them to recover, we actually just remove the agent or put them in water that contains no agent so they can recover. Great. Really interesting stuff. All right. So uh, you dissolve a local anesthetic, and the local anesthetic is uh, both causing them to be unconscious and does it also have the effect of like a muscle relaxant that they don't move? Yeah, we think so. Um, I think there's still a lot to be learned about this particular agent, but it definitely causes them to not move. So it does cause uh, muscular relaxation for sure. Um, We believe it causes unconsciousness, but there's still a lot to be worked out with that. Great. So in with other species, especially mammals, do you use a combination of inhaled anesthesia and muscle relaxants as well? So actually not not commonly. I know in humans there is a lot of neuromuscular blocking agents that are, are utilized. And I, I would say as far as that's – in my practice, personally, I don't use – I don't combine a lot of neuromuscular blocking agents along with the inhalants. There are some anesthesiologists who do like to do that. So I think it's, it's more clinician-dependent as a – to a wide general practice. Okay, interesting. And uh, so let's turn to some of the uh, different physiologic and pharmacologic differences because I think that's that's really interesting too. So let's maybe start with anatomy. Obviously, there's a wide variety of species that you work with and therefore a wide difference in anatomy. Are there any kind of striking or interesting differences that you find to be challenging um, that are, are very different? I mean, one thing that comes to mind, we talked about nerve blocks. Are there completely different nerves? Uh, Are there uh, animals with hearts that are completely different and need to be monitored in a different way? Um, I'm guessing here because I don't know anything about your specialty, but tell me uh, me about what kind of anatomical differences you come across that are interesting. Well, I think um, the one striking one that's one that we deal with kind of every single day is going to be the horse. Mm -hmm. Um, Something we struggle with with horses under anesthesia is both appropriately ventilating and oxygenating these animals. They're humongous animals and their diaphragm is very like, they have a very wide sloping diaphragm. And so their lungs actually go way far kind of down the animal um, as opposed to a human where it's mostly like tightly up in the rib cage. These, these animals have very long diaphragms and again, also long kind of sloping lungs go along the diaphragm. So then when we take these animals and we flip them upside down and we put them in dorsal recumbency, they also have a humongous gut, um, which is designed because they're herbivores. And so the, the weight of this gut kind of pushes down on this diaphragm and it actually causes a lot of VQ mismatch in these guys. Um, both increased shunting and increased dead space throughout different areas of the lungs. Mm. And so we really struggle with ventilating these guys because of that. Um, So that's like one big striking difference. The other one that I kind of am thinking of off the top of my, of my head um, would be actually, for example, if we wanted to do one lung ventilation uh, in dogs, we don't really have a device that's specifically designed for use in dogs for isolating a single lung lobe. And so we oftentimes use devices that are designed for human use. And probably the most common um, device we're going to be using, uh, well, there's a lot of devices we can use, but the common one that we use is actually a double lumen tube. We use a Robert Shaw. But something that's really interesting about dogs is we, we really can't use the right-sided Robert Shaw because 
there. Um, the bronchus that uh, goes to the right cranial lung lobe actually kind of uh, deviates out a lot more proximally. And so the right Robert shot doesn't really fit in a dog hmm. um, or doesn't fit very well. So we actually have to use a left Robert shot kind of for everything. And so we make modifications to that if we want to isolate kind of the right lung. And a Robert shot so is, is a type of double lumen tube? Correct, yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, I haven't heard that term. So I, I wonder if guys, that's – is that, that maybe yeah. I'm sorry. No, no, it may be the same thing we use. I just haven't heard it called a Robert shot, but that may be the double lumen tubes that we use. Yeah, I know that there's a lot of different types of double lumen tubes. This is just the one that I'm I'm familiar with. This is the one that I usually typically use. Okay, interesting. So you you said that, going back to horses for a second that they're difficult because uh, when they're lying down, you get this VQ mismatch, so they're difficult to ventilate. Is there so what do you do? Do you just kind of power through, knowing you're going to get some some VQ mismatch, or do you have solutions that help with that? Uh, we do have some solutions. Uh, again, none of these are 100. percent None of these 100% work all the time. Mm -hmm. So we employ kind of a combination of all these things. And so most of of our horses that we're doing, we ventilate them kind of right away, right off the bat. Um, We know that if we kind of delay ventilation, uh, at least positive pressure ventilation, that they can develop atelectasis really rapidly. And it's very difficult to correct the atelectasis once it kind of uh, starts to sit in. Mm -hmm. And so... As far as ventilation strategies, um, the research that I'm aware of currently is actually took from human medicine, which is actually um, the open lung ventilation concept, Mm -hmm. um, where you kind of lower tidal volumes, but you ventilate very high with very high PEEP. Um, And then you also incorporate kind of recruitment maneuvers into that. And so that's personally what I do is I try to do a combination of ventilating to very high PEEP inspiratory pressures using PEEP. Uh, and then utilizing recruitment maneuvers if I need to, um, doing a combination of that at least for ventilation strategy. There's also pharmacologic strategies that we know work work as well. Something that's been looked at in horses is actually the use of albuterol to correct VQ mismatch, um, which, again, we don't really quite understand how it works. But there there are some theories because obviously it's a bronchodilator, but there are no beta receptors kind of down in the alveolus. And so what we think is actually happening is that the albuterol is traversing down into alveoli that are being ventilated, crossing into the pulmonary capillaries, and then potentially dilating pulmonary capillaries, thereby perfu- or correcting um, areas that have alterations in VQ mismatching. Interesting. Okay. What about intubation? So it's hard to imagine... Do you use laryngoscopes? Are different? Are some animals difficult to intubate and others easy? That's a really good question. Uh, you're so full of good questions today. Um, so the the way we intubate an animal is going to be dependent on the species. Um, I have never intubated a human. It's one of the only species I have not intubated. So I, I can't comment on the ease or difficulty of it, although okay. it seems to me that it's difficult upon talking to people who, who do it. Um, and, ov- and obviously, it becomes more difficult depending on if the person can move their head, how um, overweight or not overweight they are, or things like that. And so we kind of face similar situations in our, in our species. Dogs are very easy to intubate, but something that's very different is that we intubate them on their sternum. So they are laying down on their stomachs, especially mm. when we're intubating them. And something I find that's very interesting is when we have medical residents uh, from our sister human hospital that come to our service to kind of observe what we're doing, they actually find it to be very difficult to intubate, mostly because of the way that we uh, the way that we utilize the equipment. And so, in in we use laryngoscopes that are designed for human use, and so. Because of that, the flange is on the right side, and so it's obviously perfectly designed to be used when the laryngoscope is inverted, and you're holding the laryngoscope kind of in your left hand, intubating with your right hand. But if you, the animal's opposite, basically, so it's on its sternum, right. and you're intubating right. with the laryngoscope instead of inverted straight, it actually could, the right side of the flange actually completely obstructs your view if you're holding it in your left hand, if that makes sense, and you're yes. intubating with your right. And so uh, I've actually have just learned to intubate with my left hand and hold the laryngoscope with my right hand, 
And now if I ever thought about intubating with my right hand, I feel like I would, <laughs> it would be very hard for me to do that. Yeah. And so I've just, I've just adapted based off of the equipment that I have available, which is basically designed for human use. Yeah. Well, so this is really interesting. We do a simulation of a, a large trauma accident with a bus that's turned over and our residents on a mannequin will actually try to intubate a, a human being who's upside down. And then it's the same thing. You have to switch. You have to switch the laryngoscope to your other hand. So, so that's really interesting. But um, you use the same, essentially the same one. So, dogs you said are easy. Uh, you can imagine, I guess, dogs have the quite a long thyromental distance. Yeah. So, uh, actually, it's not too bad. So, the, the thing that's easy about dogs is they can open their mouths really, really wide. Okay. So, regardless of how kind of short their nose is or how long their nose is. You could open their mouth pretty wide, so it's very easy to see everything. So visualization is very easy. The species that we have, or the the breed of dog where we have the most difficulty intubating, is actually what we call brachycephalic dogs, which are any dogs with like smushed faces. Mm. So the English Hugs. bulldog is like a classic example of mm-hmm. that. The problem with the English bulldog is that they have extremely um, large and long, so- elongated, soft palates, which actually kind of obstruct the view of the larynx, and so. That's where it becomes difficult to intubate these guys. Okay, fascinating. All right, and then what about the the agents you use? Do you use sevoflurane, isoflurane, um, yes. desflurane? Yep. Okay, the same, all three? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So um, I would say where I'm practicing, we don't use desflurane very commonly. Um, There are other practices that do use desflurane. But, yes, the most common agents that we're going to be using across species is going to be our inhalant agents, mostly isoflurane and sevoflurane. Something that's actually very interesting about these agents is that their pharmacology is very well conserved across species, and so is their MAC, actually. Hmm. So the MAC of isoflurane in a dog is actually very similar to the MAC of isoflurane in a horse or goat or something like that. And so uh, that's something I've always found very fascinating about inhaling agents in general. That is is really interesting. And is that MAC around 1% the same as humans? Yeah, I always remember it as like one point one one point three percent. So it's in that range. Yeah, interesting. Okay. So, uh, and then what about propofol? Do you do uh, propofol anesthetics as well? Yeah, very commonly. So propofol is probably one of the most common induction agents that we're going to be using in small animals. In large animals, it's going to be different um, because the volume of propofol that we would need to use to induce a horse is like contraindicated to actually use it, using it. Um, mostly because the concentration is is fairly low, right? Uh, at least the the concentration that we have available to us, and so we're actually almost exclusively using ketamine in large animal species. Okay, and you get, I would assume, concentrated ketamine. We have a hundred mg per mil ketamine is what we have available so to us. I don't too. know what okay. you guys have. No, we have the same, so we have to dilute it. So, how much ketamine would you give to, to a horse, for example, to induce? Yeah, so for a standard horse, like that's something between 450 to 500 kilos, we would use like a bottle of ketamine, which is about 10 mils of ketamine. Okay, so 1,000 milligrams. Mm-hmm, okay. correct. Um, and what about um, the machine itself? Are there different anesthesia machines for different species? I would say that the concept behind the anesthesia machine and the way gases move through the anesthesia machine is the same regardless of the species that you're using. What's different is obviously going to be the volume because the tidal volumes between all these different species is going to be different. Mm-hmm. And so for an equine patient or a large animal patients, we do have anesthesia machines that are built to handle the large tidal volumes that these, these animals have. Um, and so the volume of these circuits is going to be pretty large. Um, and it depends on kind of the size of the bellow, but typically speaking, an equine circuit volume is going to be, you know, maybe around 40 to 50 liters of, of total volume. So it, it must take a while to get that breath in. Absolutely. Well, it doesn't take a lot a lot of time to get the breath in. Um, the ventilators have been designed so that they can um, move a large volume very quickly. This is Jed popping in to say, I clarified with Bonnie they don't have a tidal volume of 50 liters. That's the total volume in the circuit that's 50 liters. And so when we're inducing anesthesia in a horse, um, and I'm sure you, you guys deal with the same situation, is that we obviously are dealing with an anesthesia machine at the beginning of anesthesia that doesn't have any 
has a zero percent concentration of an inhalant and kind of a room air type concentration of oxygen. We have to obviously change that. And so the time constant is fairly large in these in these animals because the volume is so big. And right. So to compensate for that, we use extremely high flow rates. Okay, great. Now, what about IVs? You uh, obviously animals that are covered in fur. It's got to be you can't just look at them and see a vein, right? So, how do you find the veins? Do you use an ultrasound? No, I, well, it depends on the species. Um, dogs and cats, we can actually get peripheral intravenous access very easily. Um, and horses and lar- other large animal species, we're usually using a jugular vein, so we can actually see that pretty easily. Um, and so. It, vascular access is, is usually not too much of a problem. Again, it, it depends on the, on the species. And so there are some species where it's challenging. So the one that I could think of are like uh, camelids. They're very, they're very challenging. They don't have a huge um, uh, prominence of their jugular vein when we include it. And so um, it, it can be a little difficult to see. And then also they have these very long necks and they have a lot of valves kind of along their jugular veins. So mm. it's very common for us when we're placing the catheter to actually get stuck on a valve or something like that. Interesting. So they're a little, little challenging. And then some of the other species that I have a hard time still to this day putting vascular access in are things like tortoises or other other type animals like that where, I mean, it's very difficult peripheral. We have to use an ultrasound to guide to guide that if we want to place intravenous uh, or if we want to have intravenous access. Okay. So you mentioned to me before that um, recovering horses is a challenge, uh, partly because uh, you said they have to stand following anesthesia. Why, why is that, and why is it difficult? Well, I can start with the first part. So in order for the horses to, when we decide them to be like fully recovered, they need to be able to stand squarely on all four feet because um, in order to kind of go through their life, they have to be able to, to stand. And so we require that of that particular species as part of their anesthetic recovery. They're difficult to recover because they are flighty species. And when they emerge from unconsciousness to consciousness, a lot of times it induces a state of excitation or panic in these species. So you can imagine a horse that has a lot of isoflurane on board, um, depending on how long their procedure takes. But a lot of times these animals have a significant amount of isoflurane kind of still in their systems while they're starting to stand up, which creates a lot of ataxia and a lot of muscle relaxation. Um, and so they're trying to stand up, but they're uncoordinated and they fall all over the place. Mm. And so, um, and of course it's dangerous because we have to kind of try to assist these humongous animals to get up as well. And so we rely really heavily on, on post-operative sedation to kind of get them through um, a state of unconsciousness to consciousness to make it um, a more smooth process. Okay, interesting. And then what about uh, large exotic cats? So, you know, uh, lions or tigers, uh, panthers, do you, um, is, is that a challenge? I mean, I, I guess the first part that I would imagine would be challenging is how do you get them to let you start the anesthesia? Uh, I guess that's the first question. How do you do that? How do they just let you walk up to them and give them a shot and put an IV in, or how does that work? No. So uh, a lot of times we're relying on darting systems in order to start anesthesia or initiate anesthesia in these guys. And so um, we can either use a blow dart or um, CO2 rifles, which have a little bit of a more high, high impact, but um, not as much as like a rifle gun or something like that. And so that's usually how we're initiating anesthesia in these guys. Um, for large cats, it's usually a um, like a ketamine type or dissociative type combination that we're using. Uh, and then once we and and these guys usually present to us um, in an enclosure. So uh, a lot of the large felids come in like big cages. Mm-hmm. And so uh, and I will say this: I've had some cats present not in large cages, and we've. T- told them to please leave because there's no way we're going to work on these species unless they're we can safely handle them sure. so um above all when working with this species are going to be safety for people who are working on them and so my job becomes really critical because i need to we need to make sure that these animals stay unconscious mostly for the safety of everybody around yeah absolutely do you ever work or have you ever worked on giraffes i've not worked on a giraffe personally um, but they are, are very fascinating physiologically. Yeah. I, um, I, you can imagine. No, please go ahead. You go ahead. You can imagine the dead space of these giraffes is, I mean, it's ridiculous. 
Yeah, right. That's um, one thing. And then the the other, and I again, I, I might be wrong, but what I've read that I think is so interesting is that the, the giraffe's heart has to generate a huge pressure in order to get blood successfully up to its brain. Um, and obviously the brain is not seeing all the pressure in the heart because it dissipates on its way up the neck. And so I, I believe giraffes can't be supine for long because that pressure um, would obviously... Uh, blow out the vessels in their brain. So you, would you anesthetize them while they're upright in, in some kind of contraption? Or, you know, how would you do that? From people who have worked on giraffes, and from my understanding is what we usually do is we um, elevate the neck in some way. Obviously, it's not going to be at the same degree as if they're upright. But mm-hmm. usually their neck is is uh, is sloped so that their head is elevated above the rest of their body. And so, and then obviously we're monitoring blood pressure peripherally, which is also very interesting because the peripheral blood pressures, for example, if we're taking them in uh, like the leg uh, or the distal leg, it's they're, they're very high. Yeah. And, and so uh, you know, I've never personally done an anesthetic management of a draft, but these are things that we have to keep in mind when we are anesthetizing them, just like you said. Absolutely. All right. Let's turn yeah. to, tell me about the One Health idea. What does that mean? So the One Health idea is essentially that um, medicine is very similar regardless of the species. We all kind of have a similar goal in that we want to keep kind of all living species on Earth um, or we want to monitor the health of all living species kind of on Earth. And so essentially what it, what it, or what it comes down to is that things that we do as veterinarians are helpful in the management of the health of humans and the things that are done for humans, similarly, it can be helpful for animals. And so if we concentrate on making sure that we keep all species healthy, we're actually benefiting kind of across disciplines. And so that's where the concept of health kind of comes in. And so I'm really passionate about that personally because I find that, as I was kind of alluding to earlier, is that many times when I'm approaching a species that I really don't know much about or there's not a lot of information out there um, or there's an idea that, I, that I'm interested in, in pursuing and there's not a lot of research in the veterinary literature, I usually turn to the human literature. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot more um, human anesthesiologists compared to veterinary anesthesiologists. And there's just a lot more money out there kind of been pumped into understanding uh, various medical aspects of of humans. And so the breadth of literature out in the human world usually is far surpassing what's going on in the veterinary literature. And so that's why I kind of turn to that. But at the same time, I don't feel like I oftentimes when I'm talking to um, human physicians that they're necessarily looking into the veterinary literature. Um, but there are some very interesting animal models that can be used um, that can really be a benefit for human patients. I yeah. think sometimes it's overlooked. Yeah, absolutely. And tell me, you, you mentioned a um, collaboration you did with a pediatric, uh, a human pediatric cardiologist. So tell me a little about that. What, what did you, what did you look at together? So this was a project that I did in my residency, um, where we actually looked at, um, uh, young swine, so piglets, and we use them as a model for infant uh, cardiopulmonary resuscitation. And so specifically what we were interested in looking at was rescuer fatigue. Most of the studies that are done on rescuer fatigue are done in mannequins, but it doesn't necessarily simulate what's going to be going on in real life um, or on on an actual human patient. And so we wanted to look at rescuer fatigue kind of looking at an animal model. And so we looked at two different methods of chest compressions, which was the two-finger versus two-thumb technique, which um, I think both those techniques are recommended um, through um, CPR guidelines for humans. And so we looked at kind of the difference between those two techniques, and we used different markers for rescuer fatigue and trying to see, um, because I believe from my understanding, and it may have changed since I've done the research, but if you were doing the two finger or the the two finger technique, that was a technique that was recommended for people who are doing who are alone, mm-hmm. the sole rescuer, mm-hmm. as opposed to the two thumb technique where they recommend two or more rescuers. And so we were trying to look and see if that's if that's truly validated or not. And uh, it turns out, yeah. So it turns out that there is more rescue fatigue that occurs with the the two. 
uh, thumb technique for sure. Um, that definitely degrades. I mean, the, the quality of the compressions definitely degrades over time. And so it does seem to match kind of the, the mannequin model, but the rescue fatigue did occur much more sooner in the actual model as opposed to in the mannequin model. Okay. Well, great. That's a great collaboration. And so, you know, the, is it, if people wanted to go and they were interested in the topic, couldn't find human studies and they wanted to see what the animal studies are, would they find them in PubMed or is there a, a separate repository of, of kind of veterinary medicine studies? I think you can find most of the studies in PubMed. Um, that's kind of my major source of looking for studies for both human and, and animal studies. Um, veterinary, uh, veterinary anesthesiologists do have their, their own journal. Uh, it's Veterinary Anesthesia and Analgesia, which is the journal of the American College of Veterinary Anesthesia and Analgesia, which is the college that I'm a part of. And so um, that's uh, and that that journal is accessible through PubMed, from my understanding. Great. Well, that's fantastic, and I couldn't agree more that you know the more collaboration we have, be it across uh, disciplines, across species, the more we break down the silos that traditionally divide us, the more we can all learn. And I think that's really fantastic and a great takeaway. Um, Bonnie, thank you so much. Is there anything you think we didn't cover that you want to uh, say, or you think we should cover before we go? No, I think you. I think we're good, personally. Great. I think this was fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, no worries. All right, great. That was fantastic. So interesting. I learned a ton. I hope you did too. Check out the website, ACRAC.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C.com, where you can leave comments that everyone can learn from. You can also see all the other episodes and join the mailing list. If you want to reach me directly, you can get me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com. Thanks, as always, to those of you who are patrons at patreon.com. If you're interested in supporting the making of the show, check it out at patreon.com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron. You can support the making of the show. We really appreciate it. Also, big thanks to Brian Park for his fantastic outlines he's made for some of the shows. And to those of you who have taken the time to go to iTunes to leave a comment and a rating, it really helps others find the show. All right. Well, this has been great. Let us know what you thought. Have you ever done veterinary anesthesia? Are you a veterinary anesthesiologist? Are you a veterinarian who does your own anesthesia? Leave a comment. Let us know. It'd be interesting to hear. All right. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. For the ACRAC podcast and Dr. Bonnie Gatson. I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.